Acts chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 11 this morning. Acts 1, 1 through 11. And for those of you who do not suffer from any curiosity at all, yes, this is our next study. No one, I think one person asked me what I was going to study after Corinthians was done last week. So this is where we're going to go, book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the New King James Version, as is our custom, God's Word declares, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. My Bible is still opening to 2 Corinthians all by itself. We come to a study in the book of Acts that uh, I've never done in messages. I've done it in Sunday school and done this study uh, numerous times. Uh, This is the first time I've preached through the book of Acts. And uh, it remains probably one of the last books of the New Testament that I have not preached through at this point in my ministry. And, which is an odd thing, really, because it's perhaps one of the most familiar books to me. Uh, for those of you not aware of it, when I was in college and seminary, my major was missions. Uh, and, of course, the book of Acts became one of the uh, core books that we studied in both college and in seminary. Uh, and so it, it's a very familiar book to me. It's one that large portions of it I had to memorize. Uh, in the course of the studies, and and so uh, we're going to come into some great sermons from men like Peter and a deacon called Stephen and a missionary called Paul. We're going to investigate some of those. We're going to come across a Jerusalem council uh, where we're going to make big decisions about the future of Christianity as a body of believers. Uh, We're going to Look into the beginning, the initiation of really uh, uh, planned missions. And we're going to talk about the difference over the course of time between planning on reaching out and being forced to reach out. And we're going to see mistakes being made by an early church, still struggling to find its way and understand its commands. Uh, But we're also going to see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in it all. We're going to see men getting beat up and stoned to death and shipwrecked and all the things that are in any exciting narrative or storyline. And all of this will be portrayed for us here in the book of Acts. Uh, But it's going to be based upon a very important foundation that's really going to uh, take some time to lay out. And so we're going to spend a lot of time in chapter 1. Uh, We're going to have to spend some time in chapter 2 because of the nature of how men have taken chapter 2 and and uh, I believe perverted it into something that it certainly is not, uh, and that is the events around Pentecost. And of course, um, this is going to hopefully clarify a lot of issues. But in the foundation of all that's going to transpire in this book, we have to spend time understanding that this is not about the courageous acts of great men, but rather the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in normal men, men that fail, men who in their history had denied Christ, had persecuted Christians, 
who are just normal men. But they subordinate themselves to the power of the Spirit of God by placing their trust in Jesus Christ and allowing Him to impact their lives to such a degree that they have overrun history, if you will, with what they have done and what they have taught, what they have written and how they lived. And we are privileged to be on this side of the book of Acts, to be able to look back at their testimony and to do what Hebrews tells us when you study men of faith, and that is that now that you've seen this cloud of witnesses, how can we not do likewise? So we are going to certainly look at their lives and experiences. And of course, uh, there are many ways to divide the book of Acts in our study. Um, But we are going to, again, spend a lot of time in chapter 1 as a foundation. And we're going to, some would like to say it's 1 through 15 as we look at, some would say 1 through 12, transitioning to Paul in 13 and following. Um, there are others within the church that say certain passages should be emphasized. Of course, Acts chapter 2 comes to mind. Acts chapter 15 comes to mind. That these should be emphasized, that we should derive our, our practice from this. Uh, in fact, that is a philosophy that I really want, you're going to find me opposing all the way through this, is that this is not a book on the practical exercises of the church that we do not go to this book to derive what our practices ought to be. Um, And that may sound strange because, well, that's what they did back then. Um, But we're going to find that uh, if we really did it the way they did it then, that we would sometimes be in disobedience to God's word and disobedience to God's commands. That sometimes God had to work through them in spite of them instead of because of them. And then there's the frightening aspect that if some aspects of the book of Acts were lived out in our churches, that we would have um, some interesting services with people falling down dead in them for lying. So we're going to take a very careful understanding of what we are studying. We're studying a historical record within the context of which we have some very powerful messages and an overriding theme. And this theme is really borne out in chapter 1. And that's why we need to spend so much time here, and it's going to seem like I'm very deliberately, are we ever going to get to any of the stories? Well, they're going to come. It's going to take a month or so to get to them, but we're going to get through chapter 1 and lay this foundation first. Um, Because it's very necessary. It is the driving theme. And it's what impacted these lives. It's what changed them. It's what made these, these... Fishermen and, and tax collectors, and whether they're Greeks or Hebrews, what transformed them into men of God that uh, were willing to risk their lives for a message that was rejected by some, ignored by others, uh, but embraced by thousands. Before we get into our study, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer this morning. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us. And Lord, we rejoice in the opportunity now to again study it together with liberty. And we marvel at the fact that we can do so without any fear this morning. We are not concerned about who might be knocking at our door while we do this. And for that we thank you. But we also recognize that with that liberty comes a great responsibility. First of all, that we are extraordinarily thankful and lay hold of that, not take this for granted, the time we can spend your word. And further, that we, with this great liberty, have the responsibility to speak it, to declare it, and pour all of our energies that we have been allowed to pour into your service to be poured out. And Lord, we do pray also in recognition of a responsibility to allow your spirit to control this time. 
In our great liberty, men have taken hold of that as an opportunity to serve themselves and the flesh, to serve sin, and to warp and twist your word. And Lord, we know that we do not have that liberty before you. So Lord, we pray you might guard this time, not only in this message this morning, but in this series, in this complete study. We praise this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we begin by being introduced to a man. And this is not a stranger to us. Uh, some time ago, if you'll recall, we preached all the way through the book of Luke. And this was all written to the same man. We introduced to a man named Theophilus. And we are introduced immediately in verse 1 of Acts 1 to a former account. That is the book of Luke. And uh, many of you thought I should have gone right from Luke into Acts, but First and Second Corinthians really were calling me. And, and so uh, we, we come now back to the book of Acts. And of course we begin right away by understanding its connection to the Gospel of Luke. That what the author Luke is seeking to do is to extend the work of Jesus Christ so that we don't dismiss it as something that was just ended when Jesus Christ ascended, but rather that that was the initiation of a work that would transform history. It transforms heaven and earth. And so he calls us to that, to remember that former account, uh, the first letter from Luke to this one Theophilus. And again, the word Theophilus, let's go back to Luke to see the the first chapter of Luke. Um, Luke does not go into describing Theophilus extensively there um, because we have that for us. Uh, Here in uh, Luke chapter 1, it says, In as much as, in verse 1, In as much as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having a perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And so we have this title that many people feel uh, that indicates that Theophilus was actually a high-ranking individual within the Roman Empire, most excellent Theophilus. Um, But as you recall, and maybe don't recall, back at the beginning of Luke, Um, We also looked at this as a general terminology. For the name Theophilus simply means friend of God. One who is friendly toward God. And that Luke here is dealing with an individual, or perhaps, if you take the general view, a whole group of individuals, all of those who are friendly toward God. That is, they have heard the message, they have heard the stories, they have heard the the accounts, and they're not perhaps well-trained in it, but they have some knowledge of it. And in fact, we find that Theophilus had been taught some things, and we saw that in the book of Luke. He had already been taught some things about Christianity. And now Luke wants to set forward a a full disclosure, if you will, from beginning to end, um, from its onset in the days of of pre-Christ's birth and, and Uh, going back into John the Baptist, all the way through to the current period, which takes us into the book of Acts. And so in the gospel, (coughs) he left off with the completed work of Christ's uh, crucifixion, resurrection, and near ascension. And so we find all that uh, portrayed for us. But for Luke, that wasn't the end of the account. That wasn't the end of the story. His Uh, responsibility that he took upon himself was to take it all the way through to the present day, to Luke's present day, at the time of his writing, which draws him all the way into the whole activity of the early church, uh, which, of course, within which Luke himself was touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ and joined the ministry team of Paul and was in an environment where he could learn all about the work of Christ, um, interviewing eyewitnesses firsthand. That he could sit down while Paul was over there in Caesarea, and he could interview. He had lots of opportunity to interview some of the early church fathers 
that were there in Jerusalem and in the vicinity. And so he had done the research. He had done the work. He didn't want to just finish it with Jesus, though, because he recognized that, that Jesus' work, while we, we talk about it being finished uh, there, but that it extended and that its power and influence uh, was also part of the story. And so Luke takes us with Theophilus, with the friendly toward God man. Uh, whether he was a believer uh, or not, we certainly know that he was trained in a, some information about God and about the work of Jesus Christ. This is a Greek name, and so he was certainly a, a Roman or Greek citizen. And we find him uh, outside of the realm of the Hebrews and understanding perhaps all the Old Testament. Uh, but he had some training. He may have been a proselyte, that is a, a, a Greek or Roman individual who had been converted to Judaism and on his way to Christianity. Very possible. But the likelihood is, is that he, we're dealing with an individual that has some training. He may or may not have already accepted Christ as Savior, but the indication from Luke is that he wants to give him a full record. And I believe from the Name Theophilus, this is an individual who is on the cusp of making a decision for Christ. This is one friendly toward God. One who is, who is interested in hearing the story of Christ, who is interested in studying this out and maybe investigating it a little bit and receiving some training, but he hasn't come to that point where he has fully committed himself to it. And thus Luke takes it upon himself that, that I want you to know the whole story I want to make sure you have the whole account. That you move from being one just friendly toward God to being one of, of a child of God. And this we saw forcefully in the book of Luke, where Luke uh, makes every effort to establish who Jesus is as the Son of God um, and, and the virgin birth and the one heralded by, by uh, the world. Even in his childhood, we find the extensive teaching of his parables uh, in the book Gospel of Luke. And we find all of this uh, really driving to communicate to Theophilus the great value of trusting in Christ fully as one's Savior and Lord. Unless you think this is just a historical figure like any other religious leader. You know, like... Uh, all those others that are dead and buried, and yet their teachings survive them. Uh, Luke wants to take us farther. To recognize this is a living person. And there's no mistake that when we get partway through the book of Acts, we're going to find a living Jesus interacting with a man that we don't find anywhere in the Gospels. Who is actually the enemy of Christianity. Encountered on the road to Damascus. That is the living Savior that is the one that has transformed humanity from a condition of lostness that can now trust and be delivered from sin and be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which we're going to be looking at extensively here in the first two chapters, the ministry of the Holy Spirit that's going to be borne out as we further uh, move through the book of Acts and see the workings there. We further find that what Jesus began to do and teach, he was going to continue throughout the work, not only of the apostles, and hopefully, and I think that's probably one of the biggest misnomers here, is, is the title of the book is The Acts of the Apostles. But we recognize very quickly that it is well beyond that. Stephen is not counted as one of the apostles, yet becomes a major character here in the book of Acts, and, and has a powerful impact upon uh, many people, not least of which is, would be Saul of Tarsus, who hears his sermon and sees him murdered with his approval. We further have uh, other individuals like Aquila and Priscilla, and a whole host of people that are going with Paul on his journeys, and so this isn't really the acts of the apostles. This is the acts of the continuation of the work of Jesus Christ through his servants 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not limited, nor is it necessarily uh, emphasized through the apostolic work, although we certainly see it. We see the evidence that Peter needs to take a leadership role, that Jesus assigned him. That that leadership role isn't just in Jerusalem, but it takes him down to Joppa, and it's going to require him to uh, get rid of a lot of his prejudices and, and open his heart up to the width and the breadth and the length and the height of God's working. What God intends for this thing called Christianity uh, that is well beyond the confines of Israel. All of this is the extension of the work of Jesus Christ. And so, the Gospel of Luke is what Jesus began both to do and to teach. He says, that's just the beginning. I taught you all the beginning now, back there in that other account, but that's all it was, was the beginning. And there was not the conclusion of things that, that we don't live, follow some dead teacher, that, that some guru that just had a lot of good things, some Buddha that, that had some neat ideas, some philosopher king that had, had concepts that we should conceive of or consider. Um, we don't follow a, a religious leader that we can go and, and visit his tomb. We have a living God was accomplished a powerful working that is as powerful today as the day he walked the earth. Maybe even more so. And so what Jesus began to do, and you can see the influence of Paul already on Luke, and we're going to talk about that extensively, of the, of the letters of Paul influencing Luke. And one of the things that Paul writes is that who, God is faithful. Who is going to do what? He's going to complete the work that he began in you. That, he, that this is the work of God. He doesn't start something he doesn't finish. And so Christ's work wasn't just finished back then when we closed off the last chapter of Luke. It was begun. And it extends now and has been extended now nearly 2,000 years. Not quite. We're getting there. But uh, another 15 years or so, 20 years, we'll be getting there. Um, it's been extended well beyond that. Now we are 2,000, almost 2,000 years past the, the event of the cross and the event of the resurrection, the empty tomb, and we can see the working of God that while it has certainly raised up significant opposition over the history of time, both within and without of the quote-unquote church, um, it's alive and well. Not by the power of men, but by the power of a living God, Jesus Christ. And so, Luke wants to begin by understanding that you who are friendly to God recognize that Jesus Christ did a great work. A history-changing, life-transforming uh, work uh, there at the cross by His sacrifice and the resurrection, uh, by the power of uh, the deliverance over sin and death. And today, interceding on our behalf before the Father, we sits enthroned in heaven today at the right hand. Yes, he began to do, and that is a phenomenal idea, radical in most every concept of religion taught, that Jesus did and taught until a day in which he was taken up. We are called back to that ascension narrative that Luke is going to reaffirm to us a little bit later in the chapter. He's going to take us back to that ascension, to the instructions of Jesus. We're going to look at those extensively. Uh, we're going to look also at the response to his ascension as a very strange response by people who have just been commissioned, but they were pretty much in awe of what was going on. They had not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. They were still dependent upon uh, revelation, uh, whether it be from Jesus or from angels. Uh, we have them in that condition awaiting uh, this uh, work of God on their behalf uh, that would come some ten days later uh, to uh, enable them for ministry, for ministry of, of particularly of the giving of Scripture 
while they waited from that time of the ascension to the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, um, we find that God is at work. He's preparing a great ministry. And so what was begun there was accomplished and, and seemingly in terms of the earthly role of Christ was finished. He was taken up and he says, I'm going to come back again. We find that in the midst of that, commandments were given. By a living Savior. To a body of men that none of us would have chosen to start a world-changing movement. They were fishermen, tax collectors, scribes, men like that. They weren't known for being leadership. In fact, over the course of the book of Acts, we're going to just find out how ridiculous it was for them to be the leaders of this church from a human perspective as they were looked down upon by men that we would call those of the great religious superior men. They have a better knowledge of God's Word. They have a, a better position. They have a better uh, uh, standing in the community, religious community. And we would have picked them, and yet we find that those were becoming the very strongest opposition against Christ. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, those of the Sanhedrin, of the priests. And while we will see some coming forward out of that group of particular note, yet we will see their opposition not only in Jerusalem, but throughout the entire Roman Empire, that wherever the gospel goes, there they are being opposed to the work of Christ, one of their own, their own Messiah, rejecting him. Yet here he stands, giving this command. A resurrected one that could not be denied. It would be a simple thing in the day of, his, of these appearances of Christ to men for the opposition to simply go and get the body. Just go get the body. You will silence this whole thing as a bunch of... of, of foolishness, simply present his body. It was under Roman guard. Present the body. Sealed in the tomb with the whole authority of the Roman Empire behind its, its, its guard and, it, and its preservation and with a full knowledge that Jesus Christ said he would rise again, we come to it and say you can put an end to all of this. Simply present the body. All you need to do. You don't need to beat these men up. You don't need to have trials. We don't need to have all this opposition. And this is the power that Luke wants to talk about from the very beginning is that we're dealing with a, a thing that could not be opposed by those who, who most wanted to oppose it. The greatest enemies of Christ among his own people what did they have to oppose him? And we're going to see their exercise of futility against it. Even against the advice of one of their own, of their wisest, we're going to find them exercising themselves, just trying to stop this. And the more opposition they pour on this, the more they try to snuff this out right away before it ever gets any bigger outside of Jerusalem, the greater it gets. The more opposition they pour against it in terms of physical violence, the more it grows, the more it spreads, and it just is going to take over the world. Not by the words of the apostles or their followers, but by the words of their enemies. They're filling the world with this stuff. What a simple thing it would have been to simply stop it in its tracks. Produce the body. <laughs> That's about as easy as it gets, doesn't it? I mean, you were defending it. You were guarding it. You know where it was buried. Um, produce it. And Christianity is over. That's it. It's done. 
I mean, these were some incredible fishermen that they were able to dispose of a body, taking on a full Roman guard, to the point that no one in history could produce it. Particularly, no, none of their enemies in that day. When you think about how well their enemies were set up, they had all the authority, all the access, they had the Roman government behind them, really, for what they are doing. And we're talking about the religious authorities of Israel, who had full access and control of everything around them. They, they had the, the willingness of the Romans to guard it and to protect it and to ensure that that body stayed in that tomb. They couldn't oppose it. And now, here comes Luke, talking to Theophilus, one friendly to God, and, and saying, you know, this is the account. This is what actually happened. And you and I, uh, as Roman citizens, or as Roman um, residents at least, we're not sure that uh, certainly Theophilus, if he was an individual, would have been a Roman citizen of high rank. He says, certainly you understand that this Jesus is not a dead figure somewhere in Palestine of Judea. No. He's a living one. And what he began there in his miracles and his work and his teaching, his parables, what he began there that would culminate in his resurrection and then his appearance that we're going to be studying here very shortly, uh, in a couple of weeks, um, we're going to see his, his appearance to, to the apostles. All this, speaking of who he, giving credibility to who he said he was, is magnified is multiplied by the effect after he's gone. You see, if, if very little would have happened in the weeks, months following Christ's work, then certainly what the religious leaders of Israel wanted to accomplish would have been accomplished. We just got cut off the head and, and the body of this movement will just die off like we've done before to other rebels and troublemakers. Because they didn't understand or they refused to accept who Jesus Christ really was, they refused to acknowledge the power, the testimony, what he began to do. And they did not recognize or did not want to submit to the power of what he began to teach. Nor even of his resurrection itself, which Luke is going to talk about the proofs of that resurrection that we're going to see next week, that all of this failed to lay hold of the lives and minds of others. But you, one friendly toward God, you must see not only the the reasonableness of your faith, but its historical foundation. We have a historical foundation that in our study of the Gospels um, is, is incredible. What it, what it is claiming could be so easily historically disproved. It is so fantastic the things that the Gospels proclaim Jesus to have done, to have taught, and then with his own life to have uh, overcome sin and death, it would have been the simplest thing to disprove any of that. And Luke wants to set this record for people like Theophilus, friends of God, friendly toward God, Ones who are giving real consideration to what is this Christianity all about. Not by looking at what so-called Christians did in history. And I encountered that too. You know, look at what's been done in the name of Jesus. Yeah, but look at what Jesus said to be done in his name. We don't want to investigate those kinds of things. Well, Theophilus was willing to do that. And Luke saw the necessity of that in his life that you really be trained. And here's who Jesus was. Here's what his followers are really like. Here's what they really do. Not those who claim to be Christ, but are not. But here's the real deal. And here's what it looks like. 
and it becomes a testimony to us, becomes a testimony to people like Theophilus, who are friendly towards God, considering a, a life of faith in him. And Paul says, I've given you this former account, and now it's time to extend it, because it's really not done. The story isn't finished. Not at the cross, not at the empty tomb, not even on the Mount of Ascension. The story isn't done. And I want to share with you that one of the chapters of Acts that should be defining the church is not chapter 2, it is not chapter 15, it is not chapter 13 or chapter 12. All of those high marks. Um, high chapters that people want to emphasize is what we should define the church by. Um, let me share with you where your church should be at. Your church should be at Acts chapter 45. That's where you should be at. Acts chapter 45. I know there's only 28 chapters in Acts. I know that. You're all looking for Acts chapter 45. I would have said 29, but we are, we are way far away from 29. We should be like Acts chapter 100. Because the work of Christ continues. It doesn't stop at Acts 28 either. And this is the whole power of Hebrews that says we have this great cloud of witnesses and they go back into the Old Testament. But we could easily go back into this and we look at this cloud, but this, this cloud hasn't dried up. It's been enveloped by more and more. We have more history of the work of Jesus Christ, that he is alive and well, that he is at work through his church still to this day. And we may see that ebbing and, and flow of that, and we can see it, uh, high points, and we can see revivals, and we can see low points where we wonder if there's, like, I'm the only one left. Uh, you know, we can see that over the history. But the fact is, is that the work of Christ is still going on today and it will go on until his return because he said it would. Because it's not dependent upon you and me fundamentally. It's dependent upon the work of Holy Spirit built upon a foundation of Jesus Christ. And to say that the church age has come to its dead end um, is to deny first our foundation that we have a living Savior, unlike any other faith that's out there, and that we have an active, indwelling Holy Spirit, unlike anything anyone else claims. And built upon this foundation, the book of Acts is still alive and well. We have in the past in our church studied, done some studies um, on church history, and, and we did it in home Bible study formats and in other formats, uh, and it's a valid study. You might say, well, we didn't open our Bibles that much, because we are seeing the Bible applied over the, over the centuries in people's lives as they live out the commands of Christ to his apostles that weren't just apostolic commands, they're commands to every believer, and we're going to see that borne out throughout our study of Acts. Brethren, these are the acts of Jesus Christ by the power of his Spirit among his people. Is it changing a little bit? It changes radically over the course of this one book, over 28 chapters. But it's still alive. It's still powerful. It's still effectual in people's lives to transform them from being enemies to being brethren. From being sinners to being the righteous. From being filled with evil spirits to being children of God. That transforming work of Jesus Christ that he began so long ago is still available to us today. If I didn't believe that, I would sit down and shut up for the rest of my life. I've studied the other religions. The, com the comparative religion class is something else. 
Um, I've looked at them. The end result of them is always the same. What good does it do me when I'm dead? I might come back as a frog or a cow or something, a mouse. That would be really nice, at least if you lived in places that worship them. Don't come back as a mouse in America because you're just... <laughs> but over in other countries, you get, you know, they set out milk for you. They worship you if you come back as a rat. I don't want that. Nor do I want to uh, put myself in a, such a position and work so hard throughout my life so that at the end, I can become nothingness. What kind of offer is that? What kind of endeavor is that for the human spirit to engage in? Paul, I'm sorry, Luke here calls Theophilus. Listen. Roman Empire is full of deities. Little d deities that offer all kinds of things. But they're, they're fickle gods and they do the same horrible sinful acts with each other that men do among themselves. They're simply a reflection of us. But here is someone so unique, this one Jesus. And with the uniqueness of who he is and what he claimed, what he taught, what he did, the uniqueness of, of his promise that it destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up, um, must be borne out in radical Christian lives, a radical transformation. And that is still true today. And one of the saddest parts of the church is that we do not see the radical transformation sufficient in our lives to impress the world that there is something weird about that faith compared to any other faith. Why are these people that, whether regardless of their educational level, regardless of, of their natural leadership abilities, why are they so committed to something that they will gladly stand up to be slaughtered for this belief. Not stand to be applauded for it, to be slaughtered for it. Why? Not to kill for it, but to be killed for it. Now, have many gone out and done those very evil acts in the name of Jesus? Yes, but only in that name not in the spirit of Jesus. God calls us to be an extension of this book. So as we study this book, we're going to look at it as a historical record, certainly, and, we're, and I'm going to try really hard not to make this a Sunday school lesson. That's the only way I've ever taught the book of Acts is in a classroom setting. But we're going to look at how it needs to come alive in us and that we need to take this foundation that we are the living work of Jesus today. That we do not have a dead faith nor a dead religion because we don't have a dead Savior. And it ought to be at work in us that we are the continuing record of the work, the acts of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit among His people. What he began to do and to teach was not culminated in the day that he was taken up. But rather, he had given commands. And those commands are still valid. They still weigh upon us. They are still our directives for our life individually and for our activity ecclesiastically as a church body. Those are still our orders. And we have too, too much of a degree just capitulated that, well, it's a different world now than then. Really? I don't know what you think the world was like back then, but Rome was pretty anti-monotheism. They elevated some weird things 
forward. They were pretty decadent. Uh, they were involved in some gross immorality. Um, they were violent. If you don't think the Roman world was violent, you haven't read much about what happened in the Colosseums. Those weren't just um, theatrical performances. So when we look at our society, it's time to stop making excuses of why this kind of activity isn't our activity. That the book of Acts aren't our kind of acts. That is, that we are what we are doing as a body of saints, as individuals. Now, we're not going to muddy these waters by, by trying to go back into the revelatory gifts and all that is involved there. Um, and, and it's fascinating how people want to focus their attention on all of that and ignore the very clear instruction throughout the book of Acts that we stand up and declare who Christ is what he has done, and we do that by our living and suffering. We all want to be pat on the back for being able to have this revelatory work called gifts. But somehow we fail to understand our participation in the work of Christ where we have opposition, where we have sacrifice, where we have uh, beatings and, and stonings and things like that going on and giving glory to God in the midst of it. Oh, that we would allow the power of Christ to be filled up in us. And Jesus Christ himself promised this. He said, greater works than these will my followers do. Isn't that odd? Greater works than Jesus? Yep. We're going to see that come out in Peter, in his ministry, in Paul. But you see, we think greater works means greater miracles. But the greatest and most miraculous work in the history of humanity is to take the dead and make them living. And it's happened in this room. And hopefully it's the testimony of each one of you. I'm convinced it became the testimony of this Guy who was friendly to God, Theophilus. He said, I'll take that deal. Take my death that I might have your life, Christ. This is the greatest work in that all of humanity knows. It is the work of the church still today to go out to the dead and make them living. To go out to sinners and see the work of Christ transform them into holy ones called saints. We are still called to this greatest work of the church founded upon the doings and teachings and the ascension and all that is required for that to occur of Jesus Christ. And by the same Spirit by which Christ gave His command we obey those commands. We're going to explore that Holy Spirit extensively in this study. For He is promised, He comes, and we find the people engaging in these acts of Jesus Christ fully dependent upon Him. And yet we're also going to find instances where people want to pervert it. They want to pay for it. They want to manipulate it instead of recognizing the foundation. They want to secularize it because they did not recognize the power it was built upon, which is what Jesus began to do and teach until his ascension. So what is Jesus continuing to do and to teach through his church today? What chapter of Acts are we on in this church? Are we stuck back in Acts chapter 2? Wanting to relive that? I hope not. 
Are we there in Acts chapter 15 trying to establish some kind of authority on earth? I hope not. I hope that as a church we'll see our place well beyond Acts chapter 28. Not by our strength or determination, but built upon the foundation of who Jesus is, what He did and taught, and where He is today, and the Spirit of God that He has sent amongst us till His coming. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word. And we immediately recognize the foundation of your work in history. The Lord, just understanding and recognizing it intellectually is really not enough, and we see that. We pray that we might walk in your Spirit. That you might have, by our righteous obedience, permission to work in us and through us to reach a lost world and to impact it for your name's sake. Lord, we thank you so much for a wondrous salvation. A faith that we describe as simple and yet is so sure it can confound the mightiest among us. Lord, we rejoice in this account that Luke has given, the opportunity we have to study it together. Lord, keep us from thinking that this is just a historical document. Help us to recognize how it needs to be lived out in us, in this time, in preparation for your coming. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.